I bet you wondered if there was going to be someone to preach this afternoon. <laughs> well, there is. I'm not the only pastor here. We have uh, three other pastors currently. And there were two other men who were pastors at the church as well, who we have sent out to be pastors at other churches in the surrounding region. In fact, I received a message this week from one of them. And he asked me to pray for a particular situation that he was facing. Young man, not even 20 years old, had heard the gospel, had it explained to him, he had read the scriptures, and decided to give his life to Christ. He left the religion of his family, the religion of his ancestors, the religion of his community, of his people, to follow Jesus. And when they found out about that, they persecuted him. They locked him in the inside of a room demanding that he renounce Jesus and come back to the religion of his family. In fact, they left a gun in the room with him and said, if you'll do the honorable thing, we won't cause you any more problems. They starved him. They kept him locked in the room. He finally paid a young cousin a little bit of money who would maybe leave a door unlocked for him. And this past week, he made a run for it. He got on a bus, and the family members actually contacted the police who set up a checkpoint. And when the bus came to the checkpoint, they walked through the bus, examining papers, passports, asking for the particular name of this young man. By God's grace, he was at the back of the bus. And when he got to the back of the bus, the policeman decided, I'm done. And he got off the bus and left. This young man is now staying in the home of a church member in that particular city. He's being encouraged and taught while he's there. You know, the scriptures say that many people who follow Jesus will make the ultimate sacrifice to follow him. Their worship of him will be ultimately sacrificial. They'll give their lives. Then again, there's many of us, certainly some of us have experienced suffering because of following Jesus, but not all of us will make the same kind of sacrifice. And yet, all true disciples' worship of Jesus will be sacrificial in some way. Sometimes those true disciples turn out to be the most unlikely people, people we least expect to be true disciples of him. Well, three weeks ago, we left off in our study of Mark in chapter 13. And in Mark 13, we considered a long stretch of Jesus' prophecies about what would happen when the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed, which was fulfilled some 40 years later after the life of Jesus when Jerusalem was attacked and the temple was leveled to the ground. Jesus also prophesied in Mark chapter 13 about an unknown time in the future when he would come again in power and glory accompanied by all the angels of God to gather all of God's people together. But Jesus has also prophesied about his death. And that's about to come true. 
his warning to the disciples for now and the future in chapter 13, be on guard, stay awake, be ready for betrayal and suffering. Are the disciples ready? Are they spiritually awake? Well, they may not be, but Jesus is ready. He's ready for betrayal, ready for suffering. He knows exactly what's happening. Turn with me to chapter 14 in the book of Mark, where we pick up the account of Jesus' life and eventually his death and then his resurrection. Chapter 14, we're looking at verses 1 through 11 this afternoon. 1 through 11. Follow along as I read. Now it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is life. Oh, Lord, would you guide us? Would you enliven us with your word? Would you convict us? Would you assure us? Speak to us, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's what I think Mark, the author, wants us to learn and act on based on his account here in these verses. Give Jesus the sacrificial worship of a true disciple. Give Jesus the sacrificial worship of a true disciple. Now, my sermon this afternoon is going to have two points. The first point is going to be much longer than the second point. So just know that ahead of time. And the first point is sacrificial worship. Sacrificial worship. That's what we see, particularly in verses 1 through 9, or you might even say specifically 3 through 9. But Mark begins this section of his account of Jesus' life with a very specific indication of what time it was. And he's going to keep marking off the events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection over the next three chapters very carefully with indications of time. Now, the timing of those events lets us know at least one thing, that these were real events. They're real history. It happened. Mark wants us to know that. And the timing of those events also 
lets us know Jesus' resurrection and death and resurrection are very intentionally orchestrated by God to happen at specific times that were meaningful to the Jews so that it would illustrate and explain further who Jesus is and what he came to do. The most important event happening for the Jews as chapter 14 begins is the festival or feast of the Passover. Verse 1, it says, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if you want to understand the Bible and God's plan of salvation for sinful mankind, understanding what the Passover was, what it was and what it represented will magnify and clarify what God the Father was doing through Jesus, his beloved son. Next week, We're going to be talking even more about the Passover as we read about the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. But we need to get a little peek into the Passover even this week. You see, God had rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt through the leadership of the man named Moses. Now, that story is recounted in the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible. God had brought 10 plagues on the Egyptians in order to force them to release the Israelites. Those plagues came one right after another. And the last one was the plague of the firstborn, where God promised to cause the firstborn male child from every family in Egypt to die. It was the worst plague. The Israelite families were to each sacrifice an unblemished male child lamb and brushed the blood of the lamb on the doorposts going into their homes. And when the Lord then passed through Egypt on one designated night, he would kill the firstborn of every family who did not have the blood on their doorframe. But he passed over all the homes that did, thus the Passover. Now, the Israelites were supposed to celebrate that rescue of God through that Passover meal once per year, not just the first time when it happened, but every year afterwards. They were to celebrate it and to remember it. And in Jesus' day, the Israelites were only allowed by God to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, in that city. And so that meant that they would all have to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem And so Jerusalem itself would grow in population about five times its normal size leading up to and during the Passover. That city was packed. It was crowded. I mean, just imagine for a moment what Dubai would feel like if all of a sudden there were 15 million people in the city and not just three. I mean, you thought traffic on Sheikh Zayed was bad now. Well, that's what Jerusalem was like. It was packed. It was crowded. And Mark reminds us in verse 2 that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to arrest Jesus quietly and to kill him. Now, that's not a surprise to us because they've been trying to do that, plotting to do that, intending to do that since the early chapters of Mark, in fact. But now is their opportunity, they see. Jesus is on their home turf. He's in Jerusalem. And they had to be careful, though, because the crowds loved to listen to Jesus. And so arresting him in public might cause riots. And that would not only bring the wrath of the crowds down onto them, 
but the Roman authorities would also step in with a show of force as well. So they had to be careful. They were looking for a way. Meanwhile, Jesus is staying in Bethany, which is a town that was about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 3 that he was at the home of Simon the leper. Now, of course, if Simon still had leprosy, no one would be at his home. He'd be an outcast and unable to be near other Jews because of that skin disease. So we can reasonably assume that this man named Simon had been healed of his leprosy by Jesus sometime in the past, and now he was hosting a party for Jesus. Jesus had become a friend. Jesus was an honored guest with him. He knew Jesus on a first-name basis. Isn't it wonderful that God doesn't just want to demonstrate his miraculous power in our lives and then move on. His desire is to be a fixture in your life and my life. Like a friend who's welcome at your table anytime. Someone who you converse with and consult regularly. Someone you talk to and live with day in and day out and week in and week out. Don't simply seek Jesus's miraculous power at certain times, at those times of crisis in your life. Seek friendship with God in Christ Jesus. That's what he came for, to reconcile us to God, to make peace between us and God. Now, Jesus is in Simon's home, and he's reclining at the table, it says. The table, of course, would have been a very low-to-the-ground table like you might find in one of the moduluses, which are attached to Emirati's homes, even here in Dubai. Pillows would have surrounded the table, and men would be laying sideways on those pillows and eating from the table with maybe one hand. And into this setting comes a woman. She's unnamed here in Mark's account. And although we could look to other Gospels and make a good estimation of what her name is, I think I want to leave her unnamed because it brings with it even more dramatic impact. Mark doesn't want to tell us her name, so I won't. This woman breaks an alabaster flask of pure nard which was an expensive ointment that would have come from India. And she pours that ointment all over Jesus' head. A few verses later, we learned that this ointment would have been worth about 300 denarii, almost a year's wages. Now, a woman would likely not have been able to have any kind of job that would have given her the income to allow her to spend such a great amount of money on something like this. And so it's probably a family treasure, this pure nard, an heirloom that's been passed down perhaps from generation to generation to generation. Imagine that you own an ointment, or let's say perfume maybe is, even is more meaningful to us, something that's worth a year of your wages in a little bottle. <laughs> I mean, that's... That's perhaps equal to a nice car or maybe even two or three. Listen, you know what? There are expensive perfumes to be had here in Dubai. You can go to Dubai Mall and walk in shops that are fancy, exotic, and all they sell there is perfume. In fact, I, I looked it up and there's 
at least one shop that has a small bottle of perfume that's worth 20,000 dirhams. 20,000 dirhams to smell good. (laughs) But this ointment was of even greater value than 20,000 dirhams, perhaps. And this woman has taken a big risk to even enter the room to do anything other than deliver food to the men And now she's done this extravagant and dramatic thing by anointing Jesus with this nard that must have been such a prized family possession. It's shocking. It's dramatic. And it certainly would have gotten the attention of everyone in the room. Conversations would have stopped. A hush would have fallen over the room. How would Jesus respond? Surely he would know how much this ointment was worth. Now, how would he rebuke her for such an attention-getting act? Well, that's what probably what many of the men in the room were wondering to themselves and wanted to know. The room was likely filled with Jesus' disciples, maybe some others in addition to the 12. They don't wait to hear how Jesus would correct this woman, though. They're angry. They're indignant, it says in verse 4. Look with me at verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Now, it would have been a typical Israelite practice to give to the poor, especially during the Passover festival. And these men see what she's done, and they see something of great worth and value wasted. And they speak up about it. They start scolding her out loud. They might have said things like, what are you doing, woman? I can't believe that you've just wasted that ointment. Or maybe they said, do you understand how much that nard is worth? How foolish. Or maybe they said, you ignorant woman, what have you done? Believe me, whoever scolded her expected Jesus to join in with the rebuke of his own that doesn't happen. Instead, Jesus rebukes the very men that are criticizing her. Look at verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus is defending her. Jesus is commending her. This woman has recognized the great worth and value of Jesus and in a lavish act of love and sacrifice, demonstrated it in public. She's obviously overwhelmed with love and respect for Jesus. That nard had likely been passed down from generation to generation, but there had never been a situation or a person who seemed worthy to use it. But now there was. Jesus was here. And whether she realized it or not, he wouldn't be there much longer with them. She likely thought of anything that she could do to show how much she valued Jesus. And the precious nard that she had must have seemed like mere fills in her pocket compared with the surpassing worth of Jesus. You know, when we spend whatever we have that is of greatest worth on Jesus, God sees that as beautiful. 
He recognizes it. He sees it. He admires it. He's pleased with it. And what is of greatest worth that you and I have? Well, Jesus has made it clear to us back in chapter 8 of Mark. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Our lives, our souls, are the greatest thing that we have to offer as a sacrificial act of worship to Jesus. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But how do we give our whole lives? I mean, how do we give to him our maybe 70, 80, maybe 90, if we're lucky, years? All to him. I mean, it can't just be a pledge that we make one day. It can't just be what we call maybe lip service, words that are not necessarily backed up by actions. Signing over our lives by signing a piece of paper, for example, must not be what it means to give him our lives. You see, we sacrifice our lives in worship of him in the very increments that we receive our lives one day at a time. We give him today, and then we give him tomorrow, and then we give him the next day, and the next day, and so on, and so on, and so on, until he calls us home. What will it mean for us to give him our lives? What does it consist of each and every day? Well, I'll tell you one thing it means. It means love for Jesus becomes central in our lives, just like it was central in this woman's life. We must ultimately have affection for Jesus, not just simply dedication to him. We must love him. I wonder, do the words... I love Jesus, roll off your tongue easily. Can you say that out loud? Have you ever said it out loud to anyone else? If not, I encourage you, pray that God would grow your affection for Jesus so that you can say that and mean it. Another thing that it means to give our lives to Christ in sacrificial worship of him is it means that his priorities become our priorities. How Jesus would treat people, for example, becomes how we want to treat people. How Jesus would speak to people becomes how we speak to people. What is important to him becomes important to us. His priorities become our priorities. It also means that we seek to obey him in the things that He's commanded us to. In fact, Jesus himself said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And so all the Bible is God's word, Jesus' word. 
He told us in chapter 13 that the earth and the heavens would pass away, but not his word. The Bible is Jesus' word, Jesus' commands. And so obedience to Jesus, obedience to the scriptures is an important way that we offer him sacrificial worship day in and day out. Are you seeking to obey him every day? Are you living for Christ every day? If you are, it's beautiful to him. He sees it and it pleases him just like it did when this woman poured out the costly ointment on his head. But another thing that we learn from this situation is that the world around us will oftentimes not be pleased with our sacrificial worship of Jesus. I mean, just like these men thought that she had wasted this treasure and then they started in on criticizing her, the world will oftentimes see the sacrificial lives of Christians and they'll sneer. What a waste, they'll think. Now, you and I have to be prepared for that. We have to be ready to hear the criticism of the way that we live for Jesus. What? Why on earth would you not be sleeping around? What are you? Who are you? You're really missing out, you know. That's what you might hear. Or, why are you spending so much time with the people in your church? Why don't you hang out with us more? Isn't Friday enough for you and your religion? You know what? The world will never criticize you if you have a little bit of religion in your life. But boy, if you go overboard, if you sell yourself out to Jesus, brace yourself. You'll be criticized. I wonder, whose disapproval tempts you to not live for Christ? Whose disapproval tempts you to love Jesus just a little bit? And not a lot. Brothers and sisters, don't be swayed by the criticism of the world as you lay your life down for Christ. Be ready for it. Expect it. And remember that when they criticize you for wasting your life on Christ, on Jesus, you know what they're saying? He's not worth it. He's not that valuable. He's not that worthy of your time and effort. That's one of the reasons that Christians are meant to live in close community, in a local church together. We need one another when the disapproving voice of the world seems loud and persuasive to us. We need to be there for one another, to say to each other, no, no, you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing, the honorable thing to live for Christ, to make that sacrifice. You know what, friend? It's beautiful to the Lord. Keep going. Stand strong. So you know what? Share with one another. Share with each other when you're under attack from the world. Let one another know so that we can help each other to stand tall and strong in Jesus. Jesus goes on to defend this woman in verses 7 through 9. He tells the men in the room that they'll always have the poor and that they can do good for them whenever they want, he says, but you will not always have me. Now listen, don't read this wrongly. Jesus is not against helping the poor. In fact, he speaks about it as if it should be a given with the people of God. 
The people of God should always want to help those who are less fortunate than themselves because God has helped us in our time of need in doing something that we could have never done for ourselves when he offered us grace. But these men are missing in this particular situation the supreme worth of Jesus. The beloved Son of God is in their midst. And that is a greater good than serving the poor and something much more important. Good deeds done for the poor by kind and compassionate people are not the same as recognizing who Jesus is and trusting in him. They're not the same. Jesus' main ministry was one of proclaiming the good news. He certainly was compassionate towards those who were needy, but the gospel is not primarily about doing good deeds for the poor or solving any other worldwide problem apart from what proclaiming the gospel can do. That's not what it's about primarily. So even in his, his rebuke of these men in Simon's house, he draws attention to what is a primary ministry of those who follow him. Look in verse 9. He says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Gospel proclamation ought to be the highest goal of Christians and churches and gospel-committed organizations. Listen, we should feed and clothe and shelter people and, more importantly, explain who Jesus is and what he did in his death and resurrection. Any gospel-driven mercy ministry should have as a mandatory component sharing the good news of the gospel as well. That good news that Jesus is speaking about here is what Jesus proclaims and solves a problem that we have that is far bigger than any lack of food or shelter or clothing. It's our problem of sin. All people are disobedient to God and cut off from the holy God who loves us and made us. And you know what? We couldn't do anything about it. Every attempt that we might have made to reach God or please God was tainted by sin and selfishness. And so God sent Jesus into the world to be like, to be like a Moses, a better Moses, and lead us out of slavery to sin by trusting in himself, believing that his death on the cross would be a substitute for the death that we ourselves deserve for our sin. And so when we believe in him and we turn away from our rebellion against God, we're sprung free from that slavery to sin and we're given the eternal life that only Jesus can give us, the eternal life that he showed that he had when he rose from the dead. That's the good news of the gospel. Do you believe that good news? Have you repented and begun to follow this Jesus? trusting in him and what he did on the cross. You can do it today, friend. Pledge your whole life to him today. Don't wait. I wonder if you remember Jesus pointing out and commending the sacrificial giving of a poor widow 
back in chapter 12, who dropped her two almost worthless coins into the temple treasury box. Do you remember that? It's at the very end of chapter 12. And there Jesus commended a gift that was actually small compared to the gifts of others. And here Jesus is commending a gift that's extravagantly large compared to maybe what others could have given. One small on one hand, one large on the other, and both are commended by Jesus. Do you see that Jesus is evaluating the gifts based on the motivation behind them, not the absolute value of the gift, but its relative value to the person who gives it? That's one more reason not to be ashamed of your giving to the ministry of the church, even if it's small in comparison to what you think others are able to give. (laughs) Don't be ashamed. Each one of those women, the widow back in chapter 12 and this woman in chapter 14, they gave sacrificially, both of them. And Jesus said that both of them were beautiful to him. So don't be ashamed of the size of your small gift if that's what you have to give. And don't be proud of the size of your large gift if you're simply comparing it to what you think others can give. Give cheerfully with the desire to honor Christ and give sacrificially relative to what you have. Now, do you realize that this afternoon, as we look at this passage, we are fulfilling a prophecy that Jesus uttered in verse 9. I mean, he said that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I mean, we're talking about it today. We're admiring it. What Jesus says here also means that the gospel has to do with historical events. The gospel is necessarily connected to the events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus meant for these happenings that Mark has recorded for us to accompany any theology that we teach people. So when we proclaim the gospel, we talk about the episodes, the incidents, the the happenings in Jesus' life like this very incident in Simon the leper's home. And so we talk about what happened 2,000 years ago at the time of the Passover, and we explain how it affects people today. I wonder, when you speak about your faith to others, do you recount the things that Jesus said and did? Are you able to tell these stories over again? Maybe maybe your own paraphrased version of the story. And yet, you know the story so you can tell someone about it. Are you familiar enough with it? Or do you invite your friends and colleagues to investigate the gospel accounts for themselves? And consider what Jesus said. Consider that he wasn't merely a philosopher, a a teacher of ideas and timeless principles. No, he was a savior who spoke truth and acted on our behalf to save us from our sin by going to the cross. He did things. Take them into the accounts of Jesus' life, including this this amazing story that Jesus said would be told over and over and over again, even though it's been 2,000 years. You know, we've spent a lot of time this afternoon considering this woman's sacrificial worship of Jesus. It is the main point of the passage. 
but it's highlighted even more by being bracketed before and behind by the opposition first of the religious leaders and last by the betrayal of Judas, Jesus' own friend. That brings us to the last two verses and the last point, a surprising betrayal, a surprising betrayal. Now, we don't know the name of the woman, of course, who sacrificed the nard for Jesus, but we do know the name of the disciple who betrayed Jesus, Judas Iscariot. We know that name. Very few people ever name their children Judas. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised him, promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You know, we don't, we don't know what motivated Judas to go and offer to betray Jesus to the chief priests. I mean, it's hard to read this and not wonder what was going on in him. Whatever motivated him, it pleased the priests. They were glad. They were joyful even at the prospect of getting their hands on Jesus in order to kill him. And Judas seemed happy to be paid to be betraying his master. I hope you see the irony in the passage. Costly nard poured out worshiping Jesus. Money collected for betraying Jesus. One thing we learn from the religious leaders here is that all religious leaders don't honor God. Some religious leaders don't know God at all. They don't know him. And one day they will be rejected by him officially and permanently. Jesus said in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, 22 through 23, on that day, that's the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These priests were not accepted by God because they rejected Jesus you know, before we moved to Dubai, we lived in Kentucky, the state of Kentucky in the United States. And one day, a pastor from a smaller town in Kentucky reached out to the student ministry that I was working in. This man was named Clay. He was a pastor. He had graduated from seminary and was pastoring a church. He was teaching. He was giving sermons every week to his congregation. And he had come across a book who, that was written by a ministry colleague of mine, it was a book about evangelism. And as he read that book, which taught about the gospel and how to share it with people, he realized that he had never been born again. Pastor Clay. <laughs> he was a pastor, but he had never actually given his life to Christ. He hadn't actually repented of his sin. He had missed who Jesus was despite all of that Bible, all of that theology. And so when he read this book, cut to the heart with conviction over his sin and his dismissal of Jesus, he repented and gave his life to Jesus. His sermons changed. Oh, boy, did they change. 
He proclaimed the forgiveness of sins found only in Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior. You know what? Many didn't like that he wasn't teaching them anymore just how to be good Christian people. I didn't like that he talked about their need for God's forgiveness. <laughs> there are pastors scattered throughout this city who just might not know God through Christ, who aren't born again. Some who are perhaps even working in this entire compound, not just this building, but this entire compound. There's lots of churches out here. You know, I know of well-known pastors in this country who don't believe that God will send people to hell. They don't believe that there is an actual hell. And they also believe that Muslims and Christians worship the exact same God. Not everyone who has a position of religious authority or even, even a religious education is saved. These chief priests certainly were not. But Judas, Judas was the most surprising. I mean, he had been chosen by Jesus. He had traveled with him. He'd witnessed all the miracles. He'd heard his teachings both in private and in public. He had seen him walk on water. He had seen him feed thousands from so little. He had seen the eyes of the blind opened and the lame walk and demons cower before Jesus. He was so familiar with Jesus. But deep down, he had no faith in Jesus. He was not a true disciple. No desire to honor and protect his master. Instead, a selfish desire to profit by betraying him. Brothers and sisters, never mistake being familiar with Jesus for faith in Jesus. A person can have attended church faithfully for years, even for decades, maybe get up early every morning and have some kind of prayer time, maybe feed the poor and do great deeds that are admired by the world, and yet never, ever repent of their sin or trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. So are you depending on your familiarity with Jesus as opposed to your faith in Jesus? Or perhaps I should say not even depending on your faith, but depending on Jesus in faith. Here's a test. If I stand and I tell you that each one of you is a sinner, that you've greatly offended God, and that there's nothing you can do in your own power to make it up to God? That every single day, even since you think you became a Christian, you've needed his grace, otherwise you wouldn't stand before him approved, accepted, loved? If I say that to you, do you feel offended? Is your strong impulse when you hear that to defend yourself? Beware, my friend. True Christians will rejoice to tell you that they have needed the grace of God, the unearned favor of God every single day of their lives just to continue living and not be snuffed out by God's righteous and right wrath against us. 
they know that no amount of church attendance or prayer or good deeds makes God obligated to forgive us of our sins. Otherwise, it's not grace. Grace is what a Christian has. Familiarity with Jesus just won't do. The irony of these verses 1 through 11 is that it's not the religious leaders who are the true disciples of Jesus, even though they were the ones that God had intended to shepherd the people and to teach them truth and model sacrificial worship of God so that when the Messiah came, the people would recognize who he was and bow down in worship to him. That's what they were there for, but these men were the opposite. They were the stumbling block for the people. In truth, they had the prestige of being called God's men, and yet they were so opposed to God that they wanted to kill God. Nor was Judas a true disciple of Jesus, though he was familiar with Jesus far more than almost everyone else. Deep down, he had no faith. He didn't treasure Jesus. The true disciple here is this woman. And she demonstrated it with unashamed, sacrificial worship of Jesus. She poured out what might have been the most valuable thing that she owned in worship of him. She saw his worth. She gave him what she was able to give. She was a disciple. One day, you know what? We'll meet her. One day, we'll know her name. One day, people will greet her in heaven and tell of how her story, the story of her, may be recounted to them in a church service or by a Christian friend. That story of her sacrificial worship produced conviction in their hearts, and they turned and worshiped Jesus for the first time because of her example. But every disciple of Jesus, you know what? is simply imitating the worship and faith of our master. She made a costly sacrifice of worship, and it made much of Christ. But he would make the costliest sacrifice of all, and it would purchase the redemption of all who trust in him. She poured out her precious nard, but he would pour out his precious blood. He would be buried as a criminal. Jesus himself testified, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. In his death and burial, by faith, we die to the sin that haunts and hunts us. And he would be raised to new life again. And she will too, because of him. Because he was raised to new life, so shall we. Every true disciple's life of sacrificial worship points to the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. Look on her sacrifice. See it pointing to his. Admire her, but worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you looked on our helpless estate, our desperate situation, 
and you had mercy on us, and you sent your Son. And by grace and grace alone, you opened our eyes to see who he was, those of us who've repented and trusted in him. Oh, Lord, would you cause our love for him to grow deeper and deeper? Will you enable us to lay our lives down and sacrifice ourselves in worship of him day in and day out until you call us home? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn with me in your bulletins to page 12 when I